G3 Assistance through Virginia's community colleges is your pathway to a new future. Get a skill. Get a job. Get ahead. Learn more at vccs.edu forward slash G3. Coming up, you've known him as a blackjack, as an acolyte, a financial guru, a commentator, and now a WWE Hall of Famer-ish, sort of. We'll get the answers as JBL joins the show. ATB starts now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to After the Bell. I am still Corey Graves, and I am excited this week. I'm excited every week, but I'm extra excited this week for the conversation that is about to be had. He is one of my longest tenured friends in this business, in this company, I should say. Uh, I have learned a great deal from him, as I'm certain you all will once the ball gets rolling. I'm not going to guarantee you're going to learn anything useful but certainly some tidbits of information. He has a wealth of knowledge. Please welcome JBL. JBL, welcome to After the Bell. Well, thank you, Corey. I'm on with the modern day Bobby the Brain Heenan, which to me is the greatest compliment you can give somebody. You do a fantastic job out there. So proud of you. Love listening to you and great to be on your podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I've wanted to get you on here for quite some time as uh, there are very few activities that I get to enjoy on a monthly basis, like sitting in the TV locker room with you and Booker T, listening to you guys <laughs> tell war stories and talk business. Uh, that's, that's, my little, that's my my little slice of heaven for the week, my sanity to get through the day. Yeah, like, that's, that's the most fun thing to me. You know, when they say, do you miss the business? Yeah, you know what the business to me was? It was sitting backstage, just BS and joking, having a good time telling stories, sometimes the same old stories laughing that to me is what the real business the part that i miss so much it's it's absolutely the best i i was gonna go deep dive into your career but i figure you have a hall of fame speech yet to give so i'm, I'm gonna pick and choose you know i'll, I'll be judicious with my questioning today I'm, I'm fully prepared for the full two-hour extravaganza where by the end half the, the arena is empty because we're just okay john we get it you were the greatest of all time <laughs> go home just go home oh man hurry it up Andre. <laughs> I do want to start around WrestleMania time, which at this point feels like 10 million years ago. You were obviously scheduled to be elected into the WWE Hall of Fame. Huge honor, uh, highest honor in our business and deservedly so. Obviously, pandemic hits. The event itself doesn't happen, but you still have a very large role in WrestleMania, arguably the most unique WrestleMania in history. To the best of your recollection, what was going through your mind when you found out how WrestleMania was going to take place and that you were actually going to be calling some of the action? I was just hoping I I could still do a decent job. You know, not that I ever did a decent job, but I hope I at least could be up to what I was in the past, which some people say is good. Some people say it was terrible, but I hadn't called a match in so long in I think a year or two or longer, you know, and you kind of get in that flow when you're calling matches, it just rolls off your tongue. And the other thing I was worried about, and it came to fruition, you've seen it every night, every week since, you know, you, when you call a match, you know, like uh, you call the miracle on ice, he's out. Do you believe in miracles? What happened next? They laid out for the next 30, 45 seconds. Nobody said yeah. a word. You know, you just had that incredible panorama of the crowd going crazy over the U.S. winning the gold medal. Well, you don't have that when you don't have a crowd. And so when you have this great spots being done, these incredible moves being done, normally you let the crowd chant, you let the crowd do stuff, but you're talking over it because mm -hmm. there is no crowd. And that seems completely unnatural. It is unnatural. And you feel like you're talking too much. So it's a different mindset as far as the commentary. And that 
took a, a little while to get used to. I'm not sure I ever got used to it. Yeah, it's it's very strange. It still takes some getting used to. The Thunderdome, uh, they pipe the, the crowd noise in through our headset, so that helps a lot. At least feels for us, for Cole and I, I can't speak for the guys in the ring, that it, it's a little bit of a return to normalcy. I think you and I have getting, got along so well initially because of my love for the business, your love and respect for the business. Uh, but you're also one of the guys that's very open and sort of progressive when you're, when you're thinking and talking about the business to the point we talked about sitting in the locker room with Booker. Um, I, I wish sometimes that was the, the content of this podcast. That's kind of what I would love. It's to, the fly on the wall mentality. Cause I very rarely speak for the most part, unless it's to kind of keep the, the conversation going. I love sitting there and listening to you and Booker, but you're always very open-minded to how the business has changed versus when you broke in, how you came up and how you became a star. What are you seeing? in this current pandemic era, like it or not, that's kind of what it is. It's the pandemic era that, that you're enjoying as far as WWE right now. I think the athleticism, the athleticism to me that they're putting together things that we only dreamed of, you know, not too many decades ago, the drop kick was a finish. Uh, you had a flying knee from Brody was a, a finish. And now you're, you're having to jump off a building now. And not that that's good or bad, but these guys had the ability to do that. I think we had a few guys that had the ability to do that, but they didn't go to the extreme that these guys go. And that's just because the business has been pushed further along. And I'm not going to be one of these old guys who say, well, we did it so much better back in our day. I don't know if we did or not. Uh, we did well. These guys are doing well. It's just a different way of doing things. Do you think that the, the genie is too far out of the bottle, so to speak, to ever really return to, I hate to say the old days or the old style, but do you think, it's possible for the business as a whole to kind of take a step back as far as what happens in the ring. No, absolutely not. I, I called a, a tribute to the troops match somewhere. I can't remember where it was. It was in the United States. We're on an aircraft carrier, I believe is where we were. And the crowd was pretty much into everything. Like they were, you know, especially the, that crowd, you know, where they know we're there to show our love for the troops. But when Randy Orton came out and he got a guy in the corner and just threw that one old punch, you know, just like his dad, Bob Orton used to throw the whole crowd just kind of sat up. You know, it wasn't a flip. It wasn't a, a huge hurricane off the top rope. It was a punch. And people looked at it and thought, oh, my God. And so, no, I don't think so. I think guys like Randy still have the ability to take these people in, maybe even more so. You know what happened in Japan, say, in the early 90s? You know, the crowd would sit there and they were just very respectful. They just watched the match. Then you started seeing a, a big move or something, and the guy would one, two, and you'd see him barely kick out, and they'd, they'd stomp their feet a little bit. Well, after a while, you got every wrestler in Japan was wanting to get people to stomp their feet. You know, that's the crowd leading the boys, not the boys leading the crowd. It just, I'm just not sure it works that way. And that's what you're seeing now. People are all trying to get these holy moments going. Instead of just trying to put together a, a Shakespeare story that makes sense. And I'm not bashing these guys. Maybe that's where... This business is going and that's good. I don't know that, but I do think that that style still works of the old solid Randy Orton guy, AJ Styles. I mean, when those guys get in the ring, it's a different reaction to the crowd. We're not seeing that right now because of the pandemic, but when you see a live crowd, it's noticeable. When in your career, how, how deep into your career did that light bulb go off for you? Where, where you learned how, how to work, so to speak, and as a lot of guys say, it's, it's a lost art now. It was a couple times, you know, it's kind of a progression. You know, I don't know if there's this one time light bulb switch that goes off. It was something that 
I remember we had a guy come over uh, to Europe. I was wrestling for Otto Vance and Peter William over in Europe and in Austria and Germany, living over there, working for catch wrestling. And uh, this big guy, 6'6", 270 pounds, came back and Fit Finley said, man, it was a good match. He goes, ah, thank you. He goes, you did that uh, big drop kick in the Hurricanrana. And he said, yeah. And he said, the crowd really popped. And he said, yeah, yeah, they loved it. He said, you're a bad guy. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> and it was like throwing frisbees to a guy in a, in a, sitting in a chair. It was over his head. He never got it. But when I'm sitting there listening, I'm going, that makes sense. You know, there, there's, a, there's a way to be a bad guy in this world. And I think some of that is just kind of, you kind of start picking it up. And all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I'm starting to get a handle on this. Going forward, feel free to uh, dive in. I know what a wrestling historian you are. And you mentioned the name Otto Vons. Um, so anytime, anytime you're going to drop anything like that, by all means, please, I'm sure the listeners will, would love to learn. Otto couldn't walk up 20, 20 stairs, but he could rip a phone book in half no matter how big it was. Otto had the world record for ripping phone books in half. Otto would sit there. He was a typical big fun-loving Austrian. Loved to drink beer, you know, great big beer belly. Huge, huge man. And he would they give him phone books. And he'd just break the binder and rip them in half, and you'd see him just covered in sweat immediately. He was in terrible shape, but he lived to be quite an old man. We didn't, we never dreamed Otto would live that long. Good, good dude. We're going down. We're going out to Croatia one time from uh, from Vienna, and Otto he had forgotten his passport, and I was the only one with Otto in his huge uh, Mercedes that he was driving down in. And he goes, oh, don't worry, don't worry. So we get down to the border, and he goes, I'm going to uh, Croatia. And they go, oh, it's Otto Vons. They let us in place <laughs> that had a war going on without a passport. He was that big of a name. That's he insane. With, uh, he grew up with Arnold in Graz. And uh, he's oh. uh, he goes, oh, those bodybuilders, they are tough. They just have muscles. He couldn't box. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So to the point about you being a wrestling historian, you came to this business like so many others from the football world. Is it, has it always been a lifelong passion of yours? Were you a fan before you broke in or is that something that kind of happened by chance? Absolutely. Huge fan. I know my youngest memories in Sweetwater, Texas, we watching Saturday night wrestling with uh, my grandfather. Uh, he, he would watch wrestling. We'd talk about it all week. We loved the, it was Fritz von Erich then. Then Kevin was a uh, debut. Then David, it was such a good time. We also got part of the funk wrestling out of Amarillo. So we got kind of the okay. cross section of the two TV. In fact, the first big match I had probably in my career was against Kevin. And I was so in awe of him. It just wasn't a good match. I felt so terrible about it afterwards uh, that I was so in awe of him as, as a fan and realized this is my idol. It just wasn't very good. And it was 100% my fault. We later had some really good matches wrestling for the North American uh, NWA title, I think it was. and. I felt better about that, but I hated that first match because I just looked across and thought, oh my God, that's Kevin Von Erich. Well, in the wrestling business, obviously the Von Erich family is legendary. It's lore. What was your time working with the Von Erichs like? Loved every second of it. I had a great time with Kerry. I got to travel with Kerry. I got to wrestle Kevin a lot of times. I'll still keep up with Kevin. Uh, he's, he's a pure gentleman. Kerry was as big a rock star as I've ever seen. And I mean, ever. I mean, you talk about Hogan, you talk about Bruce Springsteen, when he would go around in Texas, people would fall over. He was such a big rock star. And he had this humble, humble attitude about him. Part of it, I think, was working. Part of it was legit. Yeah. Kerry was a good person. He would shake their hand and goes, hi, I'm, I'm Kerry Von Eric," And they would just swoon. 
It, it was, <laughs> I've never seen anything like Kerry. It, the it factor of Kerry Von Eric was unbelievable. That, that uh, rivalry they had with the Freebirds, I mean, people never saw that. You got you to gotta see that. You got to go back and watch that on tape. I, I've gone back and watched a lot of it, but I, I still, and it's still, it's awesome. But to live through that and have that be happening at the time, I can only imagine what that was like as a fan. I mean, I, I listen to Freebird talk about it every time you talk to him. You know, <laughs> we had such a good time. You know, you leave a Von Eric boy laying in the ring. You had to fight your way back. Literally, you had to fight your way back to the to the dressing room. One night, we left Carrie uh, down in the ring, and we're coming back, and somebody hit Killer Tim Brooks right across the face with a whiskey bottle. I mean, oh. Right across the face, Killer didn't blink, and Dick Murdoch goes, "Get him, kid." It turned into one of the biggest brawls I've ever been in. It was unreal. But there wasn't security. You had to walk back up that sportatorium, uh, that old dump of a building that was so hot in the summer, so cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. And when you wrestled the Von Eric boys, man, it was it was Katie bar the door, getting back to the dressing room. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. And, and Carrie, I mean, I, I grew up in the Northeast in Pittsburgh, and I remember the Texas tornado having a cup of coffee in WWE, but – I don't think I realized until maybe after Kerry passed away what a megastar he was. And to your point, saying this guy was a rock star. Absolute megastar. And when he came to WWE, he had already lost most of his foot. I mean, it was just, there was very little left there. I mean, the fact that he still wrestled, he chalked himself a walk that was kind of a goofy walk so that he didn't limp. Uh, but you could see him walking and, and you, I would see him because I'd pick him up at the hotel or I'd go down to the hotel and get him for, to go to the show. And he'd be limping pretty badly because he'd put his, put his boot on his stuff and he would have a problem getting down. But as soon as he got into around people, he had kind of this side to side walk that he didn't limp. So people didn't know about it. So when he came to WWE, he wasn't the same guy. He was the same person, but physically he wasn't near as able to do. He was a great athlete, the national champion discus thrower. I believe he was national champion uh, out of uh, North Texas. Uh, really terrific athlete. Who, uh, who else were some of the guys in the in the Texas area and beyond that really helped you out when you were first kind of breaking in? Skandar Agbar was probably the biggest. I rode with Agbar everywhere. He and James Beard, the referee, and man, we rode thousands and thousands of miles around Texas. And Ag would tell me about the old days, about Bronco Lubitsch. Ag was one of the first guys to bench press 500 pounds back in the 50s. Broke a guy's leg. Wilbarger County, Vernon, Texas. Broke a guy's, both his legs. They were picking on him because he's uh, Lebanese. And they were picking on him, and he said, let's drive out in the country and fight. He broke both the guy's legs and then took the guy to the hospital. He told me how he did it, put it in figure four and snapped it, both his legs. Took the guy to the hospital, and the sheriff said, I know you didn't start it, but people want to throw you underneath the jail. He goes, I'll give you a couple options. You can go into the military, or we're going to put you on trial. And uh, Act took the military and ended up serving overseas in Germany. Act was a, Act was a good dude, but Act, he ran uh, Destruction, Inc. He and yes. Gary Hart were kind of rival managers. Uh, and then Percy came along as well. But Ack was the one that ran things eventually. And Ack just had a knowledge for the business. And I rode with him, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of miles, just listening to him tell stories and talk about the business and how to book matches and all that. It was really an education. Well, speaking of the, the in-the-car education, we talk to Michael Cole about that all the time, where he proudly tells the story that he was assigned to drive you and Ron around because Cole knew nothing <laughs> about the business. He was a news guy. So uh, he told his story here before about how he, he had to learn. Uh, I guess Vince told him it would take him 10 years to truly learn the business. And so he, he proudly tells the story about how he made sure there were certain provisions provided to uh, make sure that the, the APA was ready to make it to the next town. Uh, do you have any, any memories of that? 
Uh, we, we always needed a driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, even back in the day, you needed one. You know, we got stopped so many times. Back in the day, you know, you know I, would, I would never dream of opening a beer on the road. Back then, we'd get a case of beer and just drive to the next town drinking and throwing beer cans out at the sign. I know that's environmentally unfriendly. We didn't know any better back then. I'm sure. sorry. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big environmentalist now, but <laughs> it was uh, back then. It was just a different world, and you really learn the business in the car. People talk about that all the time. It's not overstated. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have internet. So all we had to do was talk to each other. So guys would sit down and make up stories. I remember Dutch Mantel would ride beside me and just literally make up stories the whole trip. It was so entertaining. And guys would talk about matches. They talk about storylines. They talk about football. They talk about everything. But you really learned a lot about the business in that because there was nothing else to do on a four-hour trip. It's not like we got in the car and said, okay, let's talk wrestling. Mm-hmm. We got in the car and had nothing else to do. G3 Assistance through Virginia's Community Colleges is your pathway to a new future. Helping those who qualify pay for school and train for the right career. Right where you are, right now. Learn more at vccs.edu forward slash G3. So when you first made it to WWE, it was, it was correct me if I'm wrong, it was Justin Hawk Bradshaw was your first yeah. run, correct? That, that sort of doesn't get as much love and attention as the majority of your career did, which obviously you would go on to reach greater successes and heights. Who were some of the guys that you enjoyed working with or maybe helped you along in that first tenure? I worked with Bob Holly almost every single night opening match. We worked, we'd work an eight, nine minute match, stay in the ring the entire time. Typical first uh, opening match, curtain jerkers. And I really learned a lot from that. Just going out there, try to have an exciting match. Don't go outside the ring. Just keep it all in there. Save it for the guys that are coming on later. I worked a lot with uh, Al Snow as well, uh, Sabio Vega. I mean, I really got an introduction into working my way up. We had a loaded, loaded roster back then. And I know people have taken uh, aside at me saying it was probably the greatest roster of all time. I think it probably was. It's certainly in the top two or three. We had everybody that was in the Attitude Era at that time. Mm-hmm. A lot of them under different names. A lot of them hadn't left and gone to WCW. But that roster was freaking loaded. And so just to be on that card was awesome and a learning experience. You know, I got still got to wrestle. My first match on live Raw was The Undertaker, which was the test for everybody that came in. You know, if you did well, you stayed. If you didn't, you were gone. And they'd constantly move me back and forth. I got to work against Sid. I got to work against all the different guys, you know, Sean, back and forth when they were on top. But I constantly stayed in that learning phase in the first few matches. And that was a great time for me. Well, I know you mentioned Undertaker, who I know would play a major role and to this day, you're a very close friend of, as best you can, explain to me some of the wisdom imparted upon you by the dead man. We worked, I don't know if I've, he, he's probably my, my biggest opponent as far as majority of times that I, we worked, probably two or 300 times. Really? Here in 04 and 05, when I was the, the main heel on the, the brand, he was the main uh, baby face on the brand. And we would close every show. So we close every show after TV. We close every show on live events. We, we worked every single night. Literally, not one time did someone say, hey, you want to do this or do that? He would just say, I'll see you out there. And, th- and that was it. And, and literally, we'd walk out there and we'd feel the crowd. Remember one time we went 48 minutes in some live event, and it was like a, a third-tier market. We enjoyed the art. 
and we enjoyed being out in front of the crowd. The crowd was on fire that night, but it was like a market you've, <laughs> you've never heard of. It was just like Moldean or something. <laughs> yeah, things rocked that night. We went 48 minutes, I remember, because I remember events coming up to us and goes, you guys went 48 minutes in a live event? I said, yeah, it was fun. He goes, good for you. <laughs> he was the consummate professional, everything about him. You know, he didn't break character. He just, he did everything right. Uh, if you draw up a guy that you said, this is what I want as far as a locker room leader. This is what I want as far as a performer. This is what I want as far as an employee. This is what I what I want as far as a leader. He's that person every single time. You, I heard you mention Sid for a moment. In my opinion, just as a fan, I was a giant psycho Sid fan, Sid Vicious in WCW. Is he uh, sold short on his contributions or, or was he as advertised? I, I, to this day, I think I met him one time. I had really no relationship with him, but I've always just been a fan. You don't hear a lot of Sid stories anymore. If it wasn't for softball season, Sid would have had a hell of a run. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that story. (laughs) Sid would literally, he would love playing softball. He was like a world-class softball player. You know, back when they had professional softball, he was one of those guys. He was, I don't know if he's a good home run hitter as Braun Strowman's dad was. Nobody was. But Sid could just destroy a softball, and he loved it. So when he come back in, Animal the Road Warriors, you go, well, softball season's over. Sid, (laughs) Sid Sid was very good. And I don't know how people view him historically. I love Sid personally. I loved him as a character. I mean, he was over, absolutely over. Well, he headlined WrestleMania, which I think it gets overlooked at times. And he did, he did one with Hogan and then he did the one with Taker. Yeah, and he was the guy they were putting everything on. I mean, I, I don't know what happened during that time that it, it kind of switched and went more towards Sean. Well, Sean happened. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> you know, when, you, when, you, when you got the Bulls and you think Will Purdue's going to be your guy and all of a sudden Jordan comes along and you go, Will, you're a great player. This guy, <laughs> this guy's something special. Yeah. Sid was awesome. He did good promos. He was, uh, in, Sid was a smart guy as far as the business. And he had that body that was unbelievable, like an action figure. Yeah. Yeah. I like Sid a lot. And I thought he did what he did. I thought was very underestimated in this business. Fast forward your career a little bit. Uh, you're doing the Justin the Hawk, the standard cowboy fare, so to speak, uh, before you become an iteration of the blackjacks, the legendary blackjacks. With as much reverence as you have for the history of this business, do you have any kind of trepidation stepping into the role as the new anything? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to make sure it was okay. My number of all with Jack Lanza. Jack Lanza was a, was the agent on the road. I have the utmost respect for Jack Lanza to this day. He's still alive at Minnesota. I still, I'd have so much respect for Lanza. I didn't know Barry very well, mm-hmm. and I've never met uh, his dad, Black Jack. So Mulligan, I didn't right. have a chance to, to look that direction. You know, Barry told me it was okay with him. Apparently it wasn't okay with Blackjack Mulligan. It was really, yeah, there was a real problem there that uh, he didn't want me and Barry to be the new Blackjacks. Lanza was all for it. Lanza did the promos for us. They asked Lanza to be our manager uh, and he refused. He just didn't want to be on the road. He don't want to be in the ring anymore and on television. He just enjoyed being backstage. He was probably the best agent I've, I've ever seen, but yeah, I had a lot of trepidation being the new, uh, especially because I didn't want to insult uh, Lanza. What was it like getting to work with Barry Windham, who amidst the, the wrestlers is widely regarded as one of the best of all time? And you, you had to tag with him. Yeah, they didn't really, they didn't give a shit about Barry at the time. I, I wish they would have. He still could go. Uh, I remember one time we were in Kansas City and he had a big name in Kansas City because of Harley and the NWA and working with Furnace and LaFon. And all of a sudden the old Barry Windham came out. And it wasn't like it was the old Barry Windham. Barry was still young enough to go. Mm-hmm. And 
all, I'm sitting there on, on the apron watching, going, "Oh my god, this is the this is the one of them that worked with Flair for." Yeah, I, I heard about this guy. <laughs> I've heard about this is the guy that <laughs> I copied so much of. It was amazing, and you would see flashes of that with Barry. Barry knew that creative at the time did not have much for him, and mm-hmm. so he he just you know Barry Barry had money. He had he was set. He didn't really care. Um, I love Barry, one of my best friends. And Barry could have still gone at the time, but he knew there was a ceiling put on him that was ridiculous. And I thought it was stupid at the time. I thought they could have done something with it. So so how did the transition happen from the Blackjacks to what would eventually become the APA? Well, you had, uh, after Wyndham left, you know, he knew he was going to leave. And Creative just didn't didn't have anything for him. They just didn't see him as as a viable main event guy anymore. And he could have been. It was was a mistake, I I think, to this day. Uh, when Barry left, it was just, I was just kind of there and just kind of blackjack. I was sold blackjack. I was blackjack Bradshaw. They dropped the Justin Hawk. There were so many different iterations. And then one day somebody came up, me and Ron Simmons rode together all the time on the road. We were best friends before we ever tagged. Okay. They said, Why don't we just put Ron and John together? They're both football players and they're both big guys. And they lock each other anyway. There wasn't a lot of fault to it. It wasn't like, hey, this is going to be some great tag team. It was just kind of like, hey, we don't have anything for Ron, the first black heavyweight champion. Uh, he's one of the greatest <laughs> football players of all time. Ever, yeah. <laughs> and this big kid who is his best friend, let's just put them together because they got nothing else to do. That's really what it was. Wow. I never realized that. I thought it was a, more of a thought out plan. It was nope, just, there was no thought out plan. It was just like, Hey, we got two big football players in the back. They're, they're best friends. Let's just put them together and see what happens. You know, back in the day, I, the, there weren't that many mixed race tag teams back in the day. I know you had uh, Coco and uh, Owen together and you had a lot in some regional territories. You had the Dudleys and ECW, but for the most part, you put cowboys with cowboys. You put natives with natives. You put Samoans with Samoans, blacks with blacks, Mexicans with Mexicans. You really didn't have a, a really biracial teams at the time. So right. this was something quite new uh, that they were trying, even though it had been done before for all those people out there who are going to fact check me on Twitter. But they really just kind of, when they did it, they wanted to make something of it. Ron, Ron absolutely refused. He said, this is not about race. This is about two good friends going to the ring together. And Ron would never let it become uh, about race. And, you know, since then, you've had a lot of biracial teams. You know, sure, yeah. The Dudley's helped also. But you had uh, Booker and Goldust were a fantastic team. But a lot of that came about later. Uh, we, were, we were one of the first. Well, it was a happy accident because it seems like once the, the acolytes would evolve into the APA, that's really when Bradshaw took off. You weren't JBL yet. You were still just Bradshaw. What are some of your favorite memories about that run? I mean, that that you guys... I think came across to everybody watching. I know to, to me as a, a teenage kid watching on television, you guys had more fun than anybody and you beat the hell out of everyone. That was one of the things that uh, Vince liked about it. It was my birthday. We had wrestled up in Philadelphia. We're down to Baltimore. We're staying at the old red roof by the airport. And I, I wanted to go get something to drink. Godfather was riding me, Teddy Long, Ron Simmons. It's my birthday. So they're feeding me everything that I can ingest. <laughs> so by the time I get to Baltimore, Ron says, I'm going to bed. I said, well, I'm going to the bar. It's my birthday. So I went down to the TV hotel, which we never did. But I knew there was going to be people down there to talk to and you know have a few more drinks for I went to bed and I ran into Vince and Shane and they, they bought me some drinks. They put me in their car and sent me back to the red roof. So <laughs> I get to the red roof and open up the door and I'm stumbling in and Ron goes, yeah, how'd you get back? I said, uh, Vince's limo. Uh, he goes, we're f- 
<laughs> he goes, you want the TV hotel? I said, yeah. He goes, you still got connections in Japan? <laughs> I said, well, I may have done it this time. So the next day, Vince calls me and he says, uh, and well, let me, crack, let me crack part of the story. He said, see me earlier in the day with Ron, you know, out having some drinks. Then I went to the TV hall by, by myself. So I, I got a correct part of that because Vince, Vince told me, he goes, he said, Vince wants to see you next day at TV. And I said, okay. So I went in there and I thought, okay, this is it. He's going to ring me out for being drunk at the TV hotel. And mm-hmm. he goes, I want to put that on television. Said, really? Put what on television? And I'm still so hungover. I'm seeing triple. And he goes, you and Ron sitting around BS and having beers. He goes, that's good stuff. He goes, I like that. He goes, that's just guys. And I said, you want me and Ron to sit around and drink beer on television? He goes, yes. He goes, I got it all figured out. The Acolyte Protection Agency, the APA. You're going to beat people up for money. <laughs> really? <laughs> so I go back and tell Ron. Ron goes, yeah, when we go in Japan. I said, Ron, we're, Vince wants us to drink beer on television. And Ron goes, that's the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and that was it. That's how the APA started was Vince seeing me and Ron just sitting around BS and he goes, I just want to put that on television. Just let you guys be you guys. He thought that was entertaining. And that's how kind of the APA, as far as the backstage started. Oh, uh, that's, I never knew that. That's incredible that based on real life, I mean, nothing, nothing better for television than when, when it's, you know, you're not playing a character, you get to be who you are. So I think it was during the time with the APA, you guys were known for your physicality in the ring. I mean, it looked incredible on television. There's still a lot of stories that resonate years later. I want to ask you, JBL, as a guy who's always had a reputation, obviously the clothesline from hell, your ammo, got a lot of guys, got a lot of stories about that one. Who, in your opinion, did you have to work against? Who were some of the hardest hitters the business has ever had? There were a few. Uh, Nathan Jones would crush you. I mean, absolutely crush you. Uh, Nathan didn't really trust people. Uh, I always liked Nathan. He was a very cerebral guy. Uh, but, you know, he had been in solitaire, I guess, down in uh, Australia or Tasmania, either one. So it was another reality-based character. I mean, he only had a cup of coffee in WWE, but some of the best vignettes we ever did was the Colossus oh. of Bago Road. I was scared to death of that guy. We were, too. He <laughs> in Perth, in Australia, in his in his hometown, walked out, just walked out, got his bag and walked out. We had flown into we had flown into South Korea. We almost had a plane crash in Russia, and uh, a lot of people told the story. Rick Flair looked around and goes, "This is the worst plane ride I've ever been on." I said, "You've been there to crash." <laughs> so we we landed in Russia, and it was it was hairy. It was a snowstorm. We we got to South Korea, then we went to I think Singapore, then we went all the way to Perth. It was the worst trip I've ever been on in back to back days. We're flying eight nine hours a day. We got down to Perth, and Nathan was just sitting there, kind of rocking back and forth. He grabbed his bag and just walked out. Just walked out. It was his hometown. He was billed as a hometown guy. We never saw him again. Yeah, I, you know he just he had just had enough. Nathan, I got along with him. Uh, and I, when I worked with him, you could tell he had a little, he didn't trust people. I said, Nathan, I promise you, I'm going to make you look really good. Just listen to me and trust me. And after that, he was fine. But he would hit you so hard. It would feel like it, he'd hit you across the back and it felt like he'd break your ankles. It was just, I've never hit that hard in my life. Wow. He was so physically strong. He was unbelievable. You know, and then of course you've got some guys, you know, Kabashi was could be pretty stiff, especially with that spinning back fist. Vader could be a guy who could really, <laughs> who could really tune it up, especially the young Vader. 
uh, he was some Stan was some uh, special out there. You know, he but, was the next one I was going to ask you about. Talk to me a little bit about Stan Hansen. I know how much he means to you. Stan was blind. You know, he always blamed it on being blind, but he, he, he you know, he just loved potatoing people. I think. <laughs> <laughs> We came back from one match. We worked with Stan and Bobby Duncan Jr., who was my first tag team partner in Dallas. And we worked with me and Wyndham worked with Stan and Bobby. And I took the clothesline all around the loop. But then for the big show in Budokan, they wanted Barry to take because he was a much bigger name. And when Stan hit him, he busted his eye open. He busted his cheek open. So he comes in there and he looks at Stan. And Stan goes, thanks, Barry. Barry. Barry said, Stan, put on your glasses. And he put on his glasses. And Stan goes, what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was all bullshit. I think I think Stan knew every bit of it. Knew exactly what he was I doing. Love Stan, but he, he's the best. Stan told a guy one time he dropped a knee on him, and he goes, oh "My God, Stan, you almost killed me." He said, "Well, I got the top rope, and I realized I really, really didn't really know what I was doing. So I thought I'm either going to hurt him or hurt myself. And well, you saw what I chose." <laughs> 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 when he's Stan, he's like, okay, <laughs> all right, that's fine. Oh, Stan man. was the best. Stan was absolutely the best. I saw some matches when I was in Japan. He had Stan and Doc, and I think Gary Albright. On the other side, it was me and uh, I, I think Bobby. Uh, I can't remember who all it was. Maybe Tinder. I can't remember. These guys would go out there in six-man tags, and, and they would do false finish after false finish after false finish, and none of this was talked through. I mean, they're doing crazy stuff off the top rope. They're, I mean, it was some of the craziest art I've ever seen in my life. And they did it night after night after night. You dropped the name Gary Albright, man. That guy, to me, watching him perform was like watching a grizzly bear hunt. Like, <laughs> just, just an absolute machine. They wanted to push a guy one time in, uh, when I was working for uh, Baba. And so every time he got near Gary, Gary would just double leg him and just leave him there. <laughs> I couldn't do anything about it. It was horrible, but the whole match stuck. But Gary did it on purpose because they wanted the guy that's like this big guy that's going pushing all this stuff. Yeah, Gary would just double leg him and take him down, and that was it. <laughs> that's crazy. Who else are some guys that you worked with over in Japan that, that you have such fond memories of? Kendo Nagasaki, uh, very uh, Mr. Sakurada was very understated. He was terrific. Tenru, Tenru was unbelievable. How good he was. He was man. He was so good. He was a sumo before, correct? That's right. Yeah, a few, a few were. We had another sumo that were is in a Sakurada's outfit as well that never made it big. But yeah, sumo was so big. A lot of those guys would, would transition over. My first time in Japan was I got the tag with Bob Orton, Randy's dad, mm-hmm. and that was just amazing. I mean, just amazing tagging with Bob's tagging with, tagging with uh, Bob Orton. You know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I got booked to Japan. I got over there. I'd only been working in the business for a few weeks uh, at the time, literally a few weeks. I should not have been in Japan. Bob would take me to the mat before the match, and he would show me some sugar holds and some things just to get me through the match. Uh, you know, nobody messed with him, but they sure would mess with the kid, you know, especially yeah. coming out of pro football. They love, you know, and they, the thing is they wouldn't beat me up. They would blow me up and then stretch me. <laughs> you know, they get me tired first, you know. We had to go 20 minutes. I couldn't go 20 minutes. And I'd blow up, and then they'd, they'd beat me with chairs and everything else. Bob would tag me in, and he goes, don't give him kid. We're going over. <laughs> Bob, I'm too blown up not to give yeah, him. <laughs> you might be, but I'm going to just lay right here. <laughs> well, so back back here stateside again to the, the APA run that you had. I, I, I'm going to ask you this. I didn't prepare for this, but it just popped into my mind because you are part of – one of the internet's favorite matches, 
Forgive me if you know where I'm going with this one. You and Ron against uh, a highly touted team that was arriving in WWE from the land of extreme public enemy. Um, and I obviously God rest both of them. I don't want to speak ill of them, but tell me that story from your perspective with Ron as to the, the public enemy beatdown that still lives on the internet. Yeah. I'll tell you the, the story that's from the truth perspective. The, those guys were, they were so full of themselves and, and we didn't like them. Nobody liked them. They came in that day at five 30. We're in Pittsburgh came in that day at 5.30, and I remember Undertaker looking at him, and uh, when he walked in, he goes, that's lunch, boys. And so we weren't going to give them much anyway. Uh, they were we were going to go to the first ever table match that was in WWE history, and we weren't going to give them that much anyway. I think we were probably putting them to a table and then mm-hmm. probably at the pay-per-view doing the favor for them. I'm not sure what it what I had no idea. That wasn't up to us. But we didn't like them that much. And we got to gorilla position and the music's playing. The only one up there is Jerry Briscoe. And they told us, they said, that spot with a table, we don't want to do that. And I said, that's the finish guys. And they said, yeah, yeah, we don't want to do that. Well, their music's playing. They walk out. So Ron said, Ron goes, what was that about? And I said, they don't want to do the finish. Ron said, well, they don't want to do the finish. We take the finish to them. That was it. <laughs> that was it. They're all jacked up. I can't believe what's about to go on. And I, Ron is just calm as he can be. Taped his wrist and got ready to go. Jerry Briscoe comes running over and he says, what just happened? I said, don't know, Mr. Briscoe. He said, are you guys going over? And I said, we are. And he said, I said, I don't know if it's going to take 20 seconds or 20 minutes. We're going over. <laughs> and we went out there expecting an absolute fist fight. We slid in the ring and they literally told us they were not going to do the finish as their music was playing. I mean, that finish is not ours. That This is stupid. This is why we didn't like them. You know, yeah. God bless their soul. I don't want to talk bad about any. Sure. That's one of the reasons. I mean, that finish is not ours. That's not up to us. The match is up to us. And we're going to make you look good. We're going to put you over the pay-per-view. And you're telling us you don't even want to do the finish now to build up to a pay-per-view where you're going to go over. So we went down and slid in there. Things got pretty snug right away. And they just cowered. I mean, they, they wouldn't fight back. They didn't. They wouldn't do anything. I've seen the match since. They've edited out a lot of the portion that was really bad. We went to leave the ring. They started getting up. Ron goes, they're getting back up. Get, let's go get them. We went back down. <laughs> the match never had a finish. Jimmy Corderas was a referee. You got to ask him the story. I mean, he was sitting there watching it live. He couldn't believe what was going on. And he didn't DQ us. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I guess he was just, know what the hell was happening. <laughs> but we come back through gorilla position and go back to the dressing room, and we think we're going to be fired. You don't do this. But we felt like we had to. You know, they they throwing a punk card down, and you know whether we win or lose, we're we're going to step up. Yeah. We waited for him at gorilla. We thought this is going to be where the fight happens. They came back, came up to us, shook our hands, said thank you very much, and, and left. It was crazy. The boys were looking at us like, what in the world was that? They thought we'd just done it, gone rogue. We hadn't gone rogue. Later, it found out what happened. Uh, Jerry Briscoe, I think, probably told Vince. And within a week or two, they had been fired. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. I've seen it a million times. I figure, you know, the internet might like to hear the truth. Another good part of that story was Kurt Angle. That was his first match to watch live. That was good. (laughs) That that wasn't raw. It was like a weekend show. And Kurt saw it. He goes, I'm not doing this business. (laughs) (laughs) He almost ended it before it began. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing against those guys now, but it was was something that happened where I had no idea why they didn't want to do the finish, why they didn't want to put us over and why they would choose that time spot to say that. And I don't know what they had as a backup. You know, you say, I'm not going to do a finish. Okay. Give me an option. Just say, I'm not going to do the finish. Basically I'll see you in the ring. 
And then they're not there to fight either. So I, I don't understand really what happened from their perspective. Before the WWE universe got to know the JBL character, obviously it was rooted. There's some truth and reality to that, that being your finance career or passion. How did that come to be? And when in your career did it become part of your life? Because obviously to this day, it, it's still a major aspect. When I left uh, the World League, I got to play professional football for a few years. I didn't make much money. So I, when I was done, I was hoping to play for eight or 10 years. And mm-hmm. whether it was a lack of talent or whether it was injuries, whatever it was, I didn't. And I was out of money. And I thought if I ever had the chance to make money again, I'm not going to screw it up this time. So I literally started reading every book I could. I just read every finance book. I started watching television. When I made with WWE, I started investing in 97, which was a great time because it was right after uh, the Asian crisis. And so I bought, I think, Oracle and Applied Materials first. And those stocks have just done incredible well, incredibly well. Uh, then I wrote a book on it because I read all these books and I thought these books really don't speak to people like me who didn't right. understand. So I wrote a book on it myself. I went on Fox uh, and at the time, Fox News, uh, to promote the book on their financial shows. And that's kind of how the whole thing took off. I later worked on Wall Street for about three years for Northeast Securities uh, as an investment banker. But during that time, I was starting to do more and more financial stuff. And I had pitched an idea that to me was kind of like J.R. Ewing from the old TV show Dallas. Dallas, correct. Vince McMahon has been asked about this since. He doesn't. He never saw it at all like J.R. Ewing. I did because I, I kind of grew up with that, and that was kind of my fault of these rich guys in West Texas that everybody hated that would flaunt their wealth. They were just they were just bad guys. That's what I thought of as the character. But I was doing so much with the the troops overseas, and I wasn't really being used. And I think they didn't want me to be this character because of the stuff, you know, it was right after 9-11 mm-hmm. that I was doing with the soldiers. I was going to Iraq once or twice a year, Afghanistan and Iraq and Uzbekistan at the time, where there was a staging area. And I don't think they really wanted me to do it. And finally, they decided one day they had right to WrestleMania. They had a bunch of guys hurt. Brock had left uh, to go to other ventures, uh, which he was very successful at. And Kurt Angle was hurt. Big Show was hurt. They needed somebody right away. And they called me and said, hey, we want to do this character. And they kind of explained it to me. It was kind of the idea I had in mind for some time. But this, for, but now they needed it. And I don't know if me pitching it got it in their minds or if they came up with this organically on their own. I don't know how that process happened. Well, once the process gets underway, you end up having a wildly successful WWE championship reign as John Bradshaw Layfield, the detestable multimillionaire. How much fun was that? Oh, my God. It was so much fun. After we did the heart attack angle with Eddie's mom down in El Paso, which Chavo and Eddie came up with, we were in the back in the dress room, and the JBL character wasn't working at all. People just still saw me as Bradshaw or this mid-card wrestler, whatever they saw me as. They didn't see me as this main event guy. And Chavo and Eddie come up with this heart attack angle in El Paso on Mother's Day weekend with this 74-year-old mother. And the best part about it was I'm listening to Chavo and Eddie talk, and they almost get into a fist fight in the back, as Guerreros tend to do, as they're pitching this angle. So Chavo <laughs> realizes he's got the hook in Eddie, and he goes, yeah, he goes, and then he goes, we'll have JBL clothesline mom. <laughs> and Eddie gets up to fight Chavo. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> And Chavo's just needling him. It's, you know, Chavo Sr., not, not the Chavo, the, the nephew. Right, right, right. 
and they get up to fight and I'm in the back of I think well, do I break them up or this idea is really good. <laughs> I don't want to, that was great. But that, that kind of set the character off. And I had so much fun. Eddie had so much fun with it. Eddie would call me sometimes at one or two o'clock in the morning and he go, I got an idea. I say, you go say this tomorrow. My ancestors didn't come over here in a boat. They came over here in an inner tube. <laughs> I go, Eddie, you're going to get me killed. You're going to get me killed. He goes, it's good. It's good. Essay. It's good. Essay. Eddie would feed me lines. He, Eddie wanted to be, Eddie loved the JBL character. He loved, and he loved JBL against himself, the Eddie, the Eddie character. So it, it was the most fun I've ever had. Talk to me a little bit more about Eddie. Cause I know we, you, we've had conversations before about what he meant to you, not only personally, but to your career. Elaborate a little bit more about that. Yeah. Without Eddie, there's no JBL uh, period. Uh, JBL was a one and done. That, that was it. And Eddie wanted to prove that he could make anybody, I think. And plus we were very, very close friends. I gave part of the eulogy at his funeral. He was one of my groomsmen at my wedding. We were close friends and he wanted to see me succeed. And sometimes at the expense of his own character and without Eddie, there, there wouldn't have been a JBL, you know, the heart attack angle, the match in Staples center, which I think was a judgment day pay-per-view that was so mm-hmm. bloody. Then the, the bull rope match. I mean, Eddie was the perfect foil for JBL, but not only because it was the ultimate rich, white conservative douchebag against this very popular Latino superstar, maybe the most popular of all time, but also because Eddie bought into it and Eddie wanted to see the JBL character. I mean, one time we were in Japan, and I got in that Japan mindset. I'm just out there, blood and guts, blood and guts, blood and guts. And after the match, I told Eddie, I said, I, that just didn't work. And he goes, I don't know what happened. He called me like he does at two o'clock in the morning. He goes, Essay, you weren't JBL. You were John Hawk. He goes, you were a badass. He goes, you got to beg. Yeah. And the next night, I go out there with Eddie, and I'm firing up just like before. And at one point, I backed off, and, and, I begged, and the people in Japan started booing, which at that time, they really didn't do back then. But that's... That was Eddie helping me with the character. He really developed the character. I remember one time we were in a match. We followed the Undertaker, which is always a, always a death wish because the Undertaker, I, I love him. He's like a brother to me. I had the most respect for him. as probably anybody in the world, but he went before you. He would have such a good match. You couldn't follow it. And he would do it on purpose. He would go out there and he would just tear the house freaking down. It was ungodly how good he was, especially when he had to go on ahead of you. So me and Eddie are on last and I'm watching Taker and this match is just amazing. It's 30 something minutes, a live event. And I said, what are we going to do? He goes, I don't know. This is really good. (laughs) So we get out there and right away, I'm thinking we're going to go to the top rope. We're going to go to the crowd. We're we're going to blood and guts, blood and guts, blood and guts. And Eddie goes, get the headlock essay. I said, okay. So then I called a spot. I'm going to go outside the ring. I'm going to be blood and guts. He goes, stay here. I said, okay. So I stayed there for a second. Then I get ready to go outside again. He goes, stay here. Well, the crowd had been so high with the undertaker and all of a sudden the crowd starts getting lower and lower. And finally they're just sitting there talking to each other and they're bored. We're sitting there in a headlock forever. And then he goes, okay, now it's time essay. And we slowly built them back up. As we left, they were all on their feet again. And it was just, it was Eddie Guerrero's mindset of, you know, I panicked. Eddie didn't, he knew what to do. And that's how much Eddie, Helped everybody, but especially me. Without without Eddie Guerrero, there's no JBL. Awesome. Can't say it any more succinctly than that. Uh, while uh, you, you mentioned all the work you were doing with the troops, I know how important that is to you. Uh, nowadays, you've got your hands pretty full with a few other philanthropist ventures. Why don't you talk about that a little bit, the, the work you're doing with the kids? 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. We, like I started up a program in Bermuda to work with at-risk kids, gang-type kids, and we had a 100% graduation rate out of a dropout rate. We, we think may have been as high as 40 or 50%. The government kind of fudged the numbers as government does, so not sure the exact metric we're measuring against, but I'm working now with a wonderful group out of Memphis, Memphis Center City Rugby. Shane Young started that group, and he's the best I've ever seen. I'm on the board, so I don't take any credit for what these guys are doing, but I'm so honored to be working with them. Here's a big problem right now in the world. You know, you talk about is there systemic uh, racism in, in the world? I don't know if there is or not. I'm not sure how to define what is going on. I know the world is screwed up. And whether you call the world screwed up or systemic racism, whatever it is, these inner city kids are being left behind. So when you have remote learning, these inner city kids, they don't have computers. They don't have right. Wi-Fi. So they're being left behind. They're screwed. And some people want to define that in different ways. I don't care how you define it. You got to do something about it. So we've set up learning centers. Teach for America gave us a room. Mike Novogratz, the wonderful philanthropic billionaire uh, out of New York hedge fund guy who's so into Bitcoin, set up Beat the Streets, which is another wonderful organization that Jerry Briscoe is very involved with. Does incredible work with inner city kids. Mike gave us some money for computers. Uh, Several people did. You helped us on social media. You helped us in a lot of ways. You donated to our Malawi program. Thank you. And Mike set up these computers. uh, And so now that these kids have a place, they're not going to lose out in school. Because if we can lose an entire generation because of this pandemic in, in inner cities, and that's just not fair. These kids didn't do anything to deserve to be screwed like that. And it's just because of where they are, because of what they're born into. And you can talk about the causes of it. There's so many people who try to blame the victims. I don't give a who you blame. Somebody's to blame, but these kids don't deserve this. And so that's what we're doing now is a focus on remote learning. Memphis Center City Rugby is an organization. Shane Young deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. He certainly deserves to be sainted. Right on, right. Every time I talk to you, you've got a new venture in that world. I mean, all over the globe. I've been down to uh, Malawi a few times. You know, that's what you were kind of to donate uh, to one of the poorest areas in the world. And uh, we're, we're working in now in Tanzania. It's a group called Bubasi Pride. I say we. They are the ones doing the work. I don't want to take credit for it. Gareth Noakes, my dear friend from Bermuda, is now a CEO of it. Uh, Richard Bennett founded Bubasi Pride. They're doing incredible work with rugby to help kids get jobs in one of the poorest areas in the world. While we're, while we're talking about what we're doing present day, I know you also have your hands full with a podcast these days. Yep. Uh, follow the action. Thank you very much for asking. And uh, the JBL character and John Layfield are, are very, very different. You know, people can play <laughs> the two so many times. I, I'm a, as socially liberal as a person can get. I mean, I, I'm, fiscally, I'm conservative. I'm more of a libertarian. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'd hate to be either one. Uh, right. so, uh, people get very confused when they talk to me and go, wait, wait a minute. I thought, well, you thought that because, you know, you think Hannibal Lecter eats people and so does Anthony Hopkins. But <laughs> when you talk about the podcast, thanks. I'm working with, man, this is most fun. I miss competition. And like a lot of old athletes who are done and has men's, I love gambling. I love sports betting. I look at it as like, I look at stocks. I look at analytics. I try to I bet probably 15, 20 games a day. And I try to win, you know, just a certain percentage of a certain amount. So even if I lose all of them, I'm not going to lose more than my amount I've set aside. It's very set structure. And I'm working with some guys who've been very successful, probably the best sports betting group in the world, the Philly Godfather. They call them the animals. They've written books about them. They've made movies about these guys. But we're doing a podcast called Follow the Action, and it's a combination of those guys, some finance stuff. It's just kind of, kind of guy speak. A few women want to you know, invest as well, so I don't want to you know, be uh, sexist by saying that. 
But it's just a lot of fun talking to these guys, how they analyze games. I coached football in college. How they look at a game is completely different for me. It's 100% analytical. And I really enjoy that. I, I love the podcast, Follow the Action. We're doing well and downloaded in over 50 countries, all 50 states. And our YouTube channel gives out tons of info. But it's probably the most fun thing I've ever done. Got to keep yourself busy somehow during these crazy pandemic times. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about it is that I'm so glad that sports are back. And right now we got more sports than ever. We, <laughs> we, got, every, we got everything happening at once. I don't know what we're going to do in January, especially the pandemic gets worse. And we, got, we don't have sports that time, maybe college basketball. Uh, but it's, it's going to stink. Hey, WWE will still be around, if nothing else. We've, we've That's learned right. To be- and there's actually a betting market on WWE, which I've never done and I never will do, uh, even though I don't have inside information, you know, same as you can bet on Walking Dead or anything else. There is a betting market uh, for WWE. I love sports betting. I love watching a game. I put a little money on the game last night. I was like, I mean, it's a, it's not a much. You know, it's, I have a certain percentage that I bet, and that's my fun pile. And uh, won a little money last night on that crazy, crazy game. All right, before I let you go, I'm going to throw two phrases at you. Just fill in the blank. WWE needs less of blank. Less of all of the crazy stuff. Uh, they don't need, I know I was in a meeting the other day, they don't need these holy moments. They need people to talk about the matches and the characters. Now, I know that's easier said than done. Shawn Michaels was considered a high flyer. He wasn't really. He did some incredible stuff, but it was all Shakespeare built up to this one big moment. All of a sudden, you see Shawn come flying off the top rope. You go, oh my God, he's a high flyer. He didn't do high flying, you know, like like a lot of these guys do. Mm-hmm. But when he did, it meant something. That first ladder match he had with Razor, I think it's the greatest of all time. They didn't do crazy, crazy stuff. They were just expert storytellers. And that's what I would like to see the most is just good storytelling come back. Not as far as the characters, you know, who they are and is does Otis like Mandy or but in the ring itself. And counterpoint with WWE. Needs more of storytelling. I think just in the ring, you know, which to me, I give these guys a hundred percent break right now. And I'm not saying they're, they're bad at it. They're different at it than, than my generation were. And that's okay. Every generation is different and they're very successful. And this WWE network speaks for themselves about how good they are. But I would like to see them go back to, to the storytelling in the ring. But to me, it's almost impossible right now. How do you do that without a crowd? I mean, I understand you've got the, the Thunderdome and that helps tremendously, but you, you want to feel that presence, man. You want to feel that rumbling. You want to feel that heat. You want to feel that white heat. You know, when, I, when Eddie's mom went down with that fake heart attack in El Paso, you had 10,000 people that were all there to, to honor Glory Guerrero, Eddie's dad. On Mother's Day weekend, you could hear a pin drop in that building. It was white heat like you've never, I've never felt anything like that. Eddie turned to me and goes, Essa, you better get out of here. You're going to be killed. I'm sitting there, this is unbelievable. It's the greatest thing I've ever been a part of. How do you have that without that live crowd down on top of you? Thunderdome is remarkable. I saw it in person. I love it. It's filled in a lot. But to me, to, to really tell that story, you need that interaction where you can talk to people. It's the difference between us and Broadway. You know, in Broadway, you can go and it's a live event. But you, what you do doesn't dictate anything that they do on the stage. Right. It's that script. I think that's the difference in what wrestling is. I remember sitting there watching a match after I retired. It was Umaga and Cena. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was SummerSlam. I think it was San Antonio. 
it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And I wasn't calling it, but I was sitting in ringside. I took off my, my headphones and just watched it. Thought, no wonder people love this. This, this is freaking awesome. And I just, I'm just a fan. I'm just a fan now. And I like, you know, like what I like. And to me, I think that's the one thing that uh, the guys can get back to. I think some are. I hope this is just a holding pattern. I just, as much as anybody, I'm excited for the crowds to fill the arenas once again and get back to uh, some semblance of normalcy. But John, before I let you go, I just want to say thank you. Uh, follow the Action Podcast anywhere they get their podcasts. Yep, Apple, Spotify. You can also go on YouTube and get it. We have to do a live UFC show one hour before the prelims every single Saturday. Follow the Action on Twitch or live on YouTube also. Beautiful. And follow you at JC Layfield to follow whatever is going on, whether it be good charitable work or just making fun of Tony Chimmel. <laughs> the most fun thing I've ever done is making fun of Tony Chimmel. I sent Chimmel a text one time, basically telling him, you know, to jump off a bridge. And I sent it to the head of a charity by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I look forward every morning to looking at my phone, realizing in our group thread, there's going to be at least three or four, <laughs> four messages with, with our wishes for Chimmel and his petty attempts at coming back. <laughs> yes. There's nothing more fun than being mean to Tony Chimmel. I love Chimmel. Well, I, I've known him for 25 years. He is one of the funniest guys I've ever met. There's nothing I enjoy more than sending him mean texts. Agreed completely. It's of, of all the things and all the knowledge you've passed on to me, that is one of my favorites. No doubt about that. Well, thank you for the conversation, John. You're always welcome on After the Bell. I'm looking forward to the official Hall of Fame speech, which will happen one time or another. Or if not, then you can just come on here and give it, you know, via podcast. Uh, via uh, uh, Zoom. There you go. Hall of Fame via Zoom with JBL. Thank you, John. I appreciate everything, man. Thank you, Corey. I'm so proud of what you're doing. You're doing a wonderful job. Love listening to you every single week on television. Well, that was a fun one. I think I need a beer now. I mean, that is kind of the genesis of John and I being friends to begin with. There's plenty of time for that. Plenty of time for you to follow at After the Bell WWE on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Join the conversation. Send me your thoughts using the hashtag After the Bell. I say this every week because I mean it. I need you. If you're using Apple Podcasts, I need five stars. I'm not just craving them. This isn't just something that I want. I need them. So give them to me, all of the stars. If you're using an Android, follow ATB on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or Google Podcasts, and never miss an episode of The Good Show. You can follow me at WWE Graves. I'll be back next week with more wisdom, more vitriol, and more WWE after the bell.